0: You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Rachel Moran. was born on the 17th of January, 1981. She was the youngest child in her family, and the youngest girl, with two big sisters who were 17 and 11 at the time, and a brother who was six years older than her. At the time of her birth in Dublin, her father Ray, who was from County Wicklow, was a deep-sea fisherman, which left Rachel's mother Wanda at home looking after the four kids. Six months after Rachel's birth, the family decided to move back to England, where Wanda could have more support raising the kids. Ray got a job working locally and was home more often then. Earlier in their marriage, Wanda says things had been less stable. Ray had been employed in the fishing industry in Hull, but it had collapsed, which was what had prompted the move abroad to his own home in Ireland. But Rachel's childhood days were stable they had a large home in Hull with a big back garden and both Ray and Wanda were present and involved in Rachel's life. Wanda admits that they were perhaps a little overprotective of their youngest child, who, because of the age gap between her siblings, was treated nearly like an only child. But all in all, they were happy and content. Rachel was a bit of a shy child, but she loved to dance and had begun Irish dance lessons while she was in primary school. She took to it, and Wanda recalled in her book, The Murder of Rachel, that you'd never guess from Rachel on stage that she was shy, as all that fell away when she was performing. Rachel moved on to ballet and tap once she'd finished primary school, and before long, she was placed in an advanced ballet class, such was her talent. Rachel was slim and strikingly tall, eventually standing six foot, and made a very graceful ballet dancer. At 16, though, she hung up her shoes, too tall to ever have a chance of continuing with ballet. Wanda recalls that it was around this time that Rachel really started to become a teenager. She decided she'd had enough of studying for her A levels and transferred instead to the local college to study IT. She took up smoking and became secretive. Her mother Wanda says that at the time she was alarmed and worried, but admits looking back, it wasn't really anything out of the ordinary, nor was there anything really wrong. It just seemed like Rachel didn't know what she wanted to do. In the end, Rachel took up a job at a hotel with a view to working in hospitality and catering, and she loved it but after working for a year there, Rachel took on another course, this time in cabaret and entertainment, which she loved. The classes were all about working in the entertainment industry and technical aspects of song and dance and stage work. The class also got the opportunity to work on stage and Rachel did some shows at Blackpool for the summer camp crowd. Again, she'd loved it. In January of 2000, Rachel met her first proper boyfriend, Mark Shepherd, through the course. When the course finished, rather than be parted from Mark, Rachel made the decision to move in with him and his family in Preston. After a few months together, the two moved into a council flat in Hull. The flat was in Court, in the Orchard Hill estate, less than a mile from her parents' home. They moved in in early 2001. Mark was training in painting and decorating and Rachel took a job working at a crèche near to her parents' house and then she worked as a cake decorator over the christmas period of 2002 Rachel and Mark spent their time separately with each of their families which had been their habit over holidays though they lived together and had started a life together they were both still young and spent a lot of time in their own home places Rachel would have usually just stayed with her parents over Christmas, but this year was a little different. She and Mark had adopted two kittens a few months before, so after spending the days and evenings at her family home, she was quite insistent on returning to her nearby flat to make sure the kittens were taken care of, and not left alone overnight while Mark was in Preston. Rachel spent Christmas Day at her parents' and went with her mother that evening to visit friends and family. The last stop was to an aunt's house near to Rachel's flat, and despite Wanda's protests, Rachel walked herself home. She said it would be quicker for her that way, rather than getting dropped off by her mum at the back gate, for which she had no key, and having to walk around to the front anyway. The flash that Rachel and Mark lived in was a bit unusual, in that the back of the houses faced the road, with fences and garages lining the street. The fronts of the houses faced out into green areas, looking towards other houses in the estate. That year, Rachel decided to make plans for New Year's Eve. She'd been shopping in the previous few days and had bought some new clothes. She was particularly proud of a new leather jacket. Usually it was a night she would stay in for, but this year she decided to head out and show off some of her new purchases. Rachel decided to tag along with her older brother John, who was heading out with his friends and other people that Rachel knew to his local for New Year's, the National. Rachel got ready at her parents' house, donning a sparkly red party dress and her new jacket. She and John intended to head out early in order to get seats at the pub, which they expected to be quite busy that night. Mark had decided to skip the night out. Rachel had stayed with the cats over Christmas, and because money was tight, he didn't want John to be looking after both him and Rachel. The gang going to the pub met first at one of their houses near to the pub, and then they all walked together to the National. Rachel and John arrived back at twenty past one that morning in good form. Ray was already in bed asleep and Wanda was dozing and reading a book downstairs. John nearly immediately went up and got himself ready for bed. Rachel rang Mark to check in on him. But it turned out he wasn't at home. According to Wanda's memoir of the events, Mark had got a last-minute invite to a New Year's party himself and had decided to head out. He was still there when he answered his mobile phone. Rachel was none too pleased with this. He'd left the kittens at home alone, a serious matter it would seem, though it left Wanda a bit amused. After hanging up, Rachel changed her shoes and decided she was heading back to the flat herself. As she tried to sneak past her mother, Wanda roused and followed Rachel out of the house. Rachel was supposed to have stayed the night with them, but here she was leaving in the middle of the night to go watch over kittens. Wanda tried to convince Rachel to stay, but her daughter pointed out that it was a short walk and said she'd ring her mum when she arrived at the flat. She would be fine. The streets were quiet, and no one was about excepting Rachel and a man who walked past as Wanda tried to convince her youngest daughter to stay where she was for the night. Wanda recalled in her book, The Murder of Rachel, that she briefly considered asking the man to walk her daughter home, but then realized how silly it would sound. The memory of that passing man would haunt Wanda. Rachel's mum took up a position next to the phone to await Rachel's call. But it never came. Wanda sat for about 25 minutes before ringing Rachel, both on the landline and her mobile. Knowing that she should be well home by that stage, but thinking that perhaps Rachel had gotten distracted and forgotten to phone. But there was no answer. She would try again and again over the next few hours. But finally, at half four, when it seemed like Rachel's phone had been turned off, Wanda gave up. She assumed that Rachel must have gone out to meet Mark at the party he was at and, for some reason, was not answering her phone. Wanda woke up the next morning at about 10am when her daughter Vanda rang to wish her parents Happy New Year's. Wanda took the phone from Ray and told Vanda what had happened the night before. On hearing this, the rest of the family spun into a panic. Ray had thought his youngest daughter was still upstairs asleep. Both parents began to ring each of Rachel's numbers then, but again, there was still no answer. Ray decided to drive over to the flat, but he couldn't get in. He thought there was movement inside, though, which was a small relief. The calls to her mobile continued. Eventually, the line at the flat was answered. But it was Mark. When he was asked if Rachel was there, Mark was confused. He'd spent the night before on his own, he said. He thought Rachel was to stay with them. He'd only been in himself a few hours, and it didn't look like anyone had been in the flat at all the night before. And the cats hadn't been fed. He didn't think Rachel had come in. Ray immediately knew something was horribly wrong and became deeply upset. And so it was Wanda and Rachel's brother John who went about checking with relatives who lived nearby and Rachel's friends to see if she had, against all odds and in a move totally out of character for her, decided to stay overnight at one of their houses but shortly after, they made a visit to the Humberside police. After Wanda Moran reported the disappearance of her daughter to police and gave a statement about Rachel's last known movements, John and Ray began searching the area between the two homes for any sign of Rachel. But they found nothing. Two days into the investigation, with no sign of Rachel whatsoever, the family were assigned liaison officers, and Wanda was told to inform the wider family of what was going on, as a public appeal was to take place. The flash that Rachel shared with Mark was searched thoroughly a number of times, and police began to scrutinize gardens and open spaces along the route from the family home to the flat. Nearby streams and drains were dredged too. On the 12th of January, while searching an open drain a mile from her flat, police found items that were confirmed by the family as belonging to Rachel. A trainer shoe, an Irish passport and a mobile phone. Police also released CCTV footage of Rachel taken from cameras at a supermarket some 200 yards from her parents' home on Hall Road, which showed her walking on her own. Police divers continued to search the drains and waterways in the area, looking for any clue as to where Rachel had been. On the 17th of January, a wiretap was put on the phone of the Moran family home. It was Rachel's 22nd birthday that day and there was a hope that she might contact her family and her whereabouts could be traced then, but no call came. Police arranged a reenactment of Rachel's last known movements on the 18th of January in the hope that the footage might jog the memory of anyone who might have seen her on her walk home that night. On the 19th of January, as searches in the open Bramson drain continued, Police divers recovered two or three small objects also thought to belong to Rachel, close to where Rachel's handbag had been found. A press conference was held after the discovery and Rachel's family appealed for anyone with any information relating to Rachel's disappearance to come forward. But any hopes they had that Rachel might be out there somewhere were totally dashed by this point. Police were so desperate for any further evidence in the case that they offered an amnesty to anyone who might come forward, that they wouldn't be charged if they could provide information that would shed light on what had become of Rachel. Detective Superintendent Paul Davidson, who was in charge of the investigation into Rachel's disappearance, told the press, quote, In major police investigations, some people refuse to contact police because they fear they may implicate themselves in a crime, most commonly unrelated drug offences, My one and only priority at this moment is finding Rachel. If somebody has caused harm to Rachel, they will have told another person without doubt. People can come and talk to us honestly, without fear that they themselves will be in trouble. End quote. Early on the morning of Monday, the 28th of January, police in Hull began a widespread search of not just outdoor spaces, but houses themselves. They planned to search some 300 homes within a mile of Rachel's flat, with in and around 100 officers taking part in the operation. At around 1pm, police entered a flat not far from Rachel's own home in Nashcourt. It was a similar two-storey house with flats on either level and was just across a green open area from the road where Rachel had lived with Mark. Officers had to knock at the door of this flat twice to get a response, but when they did, a 22-year-old man, Michael Little, answered the door. He lived in the flat alone but had a friend visiting at the time. He consented to a search of the flat. Just outside the front door, on the landing, was a locked cupboard. It had originally been designed as a coal store, but residents used them as storage in later years. Little said he stored rubbish in there now. The officers asked Little to open the press but he said he had no key. Eventually he pulled out a keychain and made a bit of a show of trying keys and failing to open the door. A police officer took the set of keys and opened it up. They found boxes and old carpet and various bits of rubbish stored in the three-foot-high cupboard. But at the back, a probationer officer saw what he initially took to be a mannequin or a dressmaker's form. But when the young man touched it, he realised that it was in fact a human body. When Little was left alone with the probationer in the sitting room of his dirty flat, while the two other officers confirmed the find, Little turned to the officer and said, it's her. I need to get it off my chest. I've wanted to tell someone or someone to find her for so long. End quote. Meanwhile, Little's friend was in shock. He had been about to leave when police arrived, but he was detained when the search began. He desperately wanted to leave once Rachel's body was discovered, but again, he wasn't allowed. He asked if Little knew what was going on, and Little had responded simply, Yeah. The man paced around the small, filthy flat in a panic and then sat down and started to rock back and forth. Little, once his secret was discovered, seemed unable to contain himself any longer. He began talking and telling police what had happened to Rachel and wouldn't stop, even after he was warned by officers and cautioned not to say anything. As he continued to speak, the constables took down every word he said. In what would be only the first version of Little's story of what had happened over New Year's, Little said that Rachel had approached him that night on the street, saying she was scared of walking home on her own. Little had agreed to walk with her and then asked her to his flat for a drink. Once there, they began to argue. Little said he had slapped Rachel and she'd run into the kitchen and grabbed a knife. He alleged Rachel had slashed his arm and, in retaliation, Little grabbed another knife and had stabbed her in the back. After that, Little had cleaned his flat and put Rachel's body into the coal shed, where she'd lain until her discovery four weeks later. That day, the two men in the flat were arrested, and shortly after, Rachel's family were informed. They had been due to appear on local media outlets, thanking the public and the community for their cooperation with the large-scale search but a very different statement was made by humberside police in relation to the investigation the second man who had been present in the nashcourt flat mark fuller was released by police but michael little was charged with rachel's murder on thursday the 30th of january it emerged that little had only moved into his flat a few months before rachel's killing and had never seen her before the night he attacked her, after little's first appearance in court on Friday the thirty first Mark Rachel's boyfriend said he had never seen the stocky, bearded man in the area before either. Michael little had had a difficult upbringing, and by the time he was in secondary school, he was acting out, and social services had become involved. Little was an outcast in school. According to the Guardian, he was bullied for his weight and gained the nickname Podgy. He went through a number of suspensions from school, which worsened an already pretty bad attendance record. He left secondary school at 16 with no qualifications. After moving out on his own, he never really held a job long term, citing various illnesses, which he said made him unfit to work. Little also became known by the local police. He had taken up a tenancy from the council in late 2002 after being put out of his last flat for non-payment of rent. In recent years, he seemed to want to cultivate an image of an unhinged artist. He would sit by his window in his filthy flat and sketch what he saw. Rachel Moran was laid to rest on the 28th of February 2003. Family travelled from Ireland, And her friends came to pay their respects, too. A local priest, Father Michael White, had done his best to support the family. He had known Rachel, having been the chaplain of the Catholic school she attended and a family friend. He had provided pastoral support, particularly to Rachel's dad through the ordeal, and led the funeral mass at St. Vincent's Church in Hull. Flower arrangements included one shaped like a ballerina. And another spelling out Rachel's name. Father White said, quote, In my 43 years as a priest, I have never been touched by a death, an accident, a tragedy, as I have by the senseless and untimely death of this lovely girl. She felt happy and secure through the 21 years of her life. End quote. Over the next number of months, the Crown Court in Hull heard a number of submissions from Little and his legal team. He had, at one point wanted to change his solicitor, and there was another submission that he was not fit to plead. but in the end, on may twenty third little attended his plea and directions hearing and informed the court that he would be pleading not guilty. His trial was set to begin on the thirteenth of October, two thousand and three. Rachel's family were horrified to hear that it would be little's assertion that he had met Rachel on New Year's morning, she had agreed to go to his house. And that they'd had consensual sex. After that, he said, she'd been killed by a third person. Afterwards, once again, over the following months, a number of submissions would be made by the defense, primarily to do with Michael Little's legal representation. He asked for his solicitors to be replaced, but that was denied. However, his lead counsel was in fact changed with just months before Little was due to appear at his trial proper. After that, the defense's motions related mainly to having the date of the trial pushed back in order to allow the new senior counsel to review the case in its entirety. This was denied by the judge. The trial opened only one day late, on Tuesday, the 14th of October 2003, in Hull Crown Court before Mr. Justice Anthony Hooper. A jury of six men and six women were sworn in and the prosecution gave their opening statements, outlining the evidence that would be presented to the court, which, they argued, would show that Michael Little was responsible for the murder of Rachel Moran. The opening statement for the Crown Prosecution Services was given by Mr. Marson, Queen's Counsel. He outlined Rachel's background, her relationship with Mark and her medical history. Then the circumstances of Michael Little's arrest was gone over, as well as that initial statement he had given the police, confessing to Rachel's killing. Though this confession was followed by two further statements, both of which conflicted with the first, and indicated that Little had not in fact been responsible for the murder, it was this first statement made to police immediately after the discovery of Rachel's body that the Crown argued was closest to the truth. But just as soon as things had begun, the court was cleared to hear a submission on behalf of the defense. Again, they were asking the judge to postpone the trial in order for further preparations to be made for the defense. Again, this was denied, but the judge decided to allow them the afternoon to finalize preparations for the case. Rachel's mum, Wanda, was the first to give evidence. She described Rachel and her upbringing, and then went through the events of New Year's Eve in the early morning of the following day. She was shown a short clip of CCTV, which she confirmed showed Rachel walking on her way home. She further identified clothing as Rachel's, her red dress, and her new leather jacket. Rachel's brother John gave an account of their movements that night while they were out at the pub together and then it was Rachel's boyfriend Mark's turn on the stand. Under cross-examination it was strongly implied that he and Rachel had been having issues in their relationship. There were inferences made about the fact that the couple had spent Christmas apart and that Rachel had been mad at him that night. Mark was, according to Wanda, distraught after his time on the stand, And the implication that Rachel might have been in the state of mind to go off with a stranger despite their relationship. Then the work of piecing together both Rachel and Little's movements that night began. A man named Nathan Tempest was up next. He was a friend of Michael Little's and had spent part of the evening with Little on New Year's Eve. They drank together in a pub near to Rachel's family home. Tempest said that Little was in foul humour, saying Little appeared annoyed that he was spending time playing slot machines, and that a girl Little had tried to chat up had instead decided to spend time with him. Tempest ended up leaving Little in the pub as he headed off to a party, but he called to Little's flat the following day. The witness recalled that he'd had to ask to be let into the flat, which was unusual. Little seemed reluctant to have him come inside. Nathan was then also shown CCTV, a different clip from the same camera at the grocery shop, in which a man walks into view on the path. He identified the figure as being Michael Little, and was very insistent and confident in his identification. Then the acquaintance that Little had stayed on in the pub with gave evidence. He'd taken Little to a party at his aunt's house that night, a short distance away from the pub. Little had had a few drinks there but had kept himself to himself for the most part. He left the party sometime after midnight and no later than quarter to one. A taxi driver who had seen Rachel twice that night told the court that he'd first seen Rachel stopped talking to a man with a dog and then again, close to a quarter past two, he saw Rachel walking on the path alone near to her flat. Another man, who was driving by that night with his wife, saw Rachel walking on the path on her own too. A police officer then outlined the CCTV footage that had been collected from businesses and homes along the route Rachel would have walked that night. First came the footage that had already been shown in court from a supermarket. The male figure passed the shop at one fifty-nine am followed two minutes later by Rachel. Then the footage from a nearby school was shown. Rachel appears on the screen first, walking towards home. About 40 seconds later, a large male figure, identified as Michael Little, walked past too. Somehow, he'd changed position from ahead of Rachel to behind her. The following day, the now police constable who made the discovery of Rachel's body gave evidence of the searches that day. And of opening the coal shed in which Rachel was found. He also went through what Little had told him under caution in the flat after her body was found. Then the pathologist who examined Rachel's body gave evidence. She described the slow process of removing everything from the shed in order to access Rachel's body, which had been wrapped in a duvet cover. At post mortem, over 20 stab wounds were located on Rachel's back and neck. There was semen found on her body and bruising to her upper thighs, indicating that she had been raped. It was impossible to determine whether this had occurred pre- or post-mortem, however. The state of Little's flat was described. He had attempted to clean up after his attack on Rachel, but of course there was still blood present which was found in a thorough forensic examination. A forensic scientist told the court about Rachel's various injuries and described how the attack on her might have occurred, saying that the initial stab wounds to Rachel's back had been very forceful, with the blade going right through her. She had suffered severed ribs and severe damage to her internal organs. Rachel had also been stabbed 16 times in the neck. No evidence of defensive wounds were found on her body, It appeared that she had been taken completely by surprise. In court on the morning of Friday the 17th of October, a warrant was produced for Mark Fuller, the friend who had been visiting with Little the day Rachel's body was discovered. Mr Fuller had been resistant to cooperating with police from the beginning and certainly did not want to appear before the court. His resistance seemed to stem from the fact that further statements made by Michael Little had implicated Mr Fuller as Rachel's true killer. In the end, Fuller was located, and that afternoon he gave his evidence. He strenuously denied having had anything to do with Rachel's murder. He told the court where he had been that night, at home with his family, some six miles away from the flats in the Orchard Park estate. On cross-examination it was put to him that he had arranged to meet Rachel in the early hours of New Year's Day in order to sell her cannabis. Fuller denied this. He was asked was it not so that he had waited outside the supermarket near to Rachel's flat, met her there and then gone to Michael Little's flat where he later attacked and killed Rachel. He denied this too. Members of Fuller's family gave evidence of his whereabouts on New Year's Eve and phone records from his house showed he had taken calls from family in Scotland and North Yorkshire between midnight and half past. Those family members took to the stand to confirm it had been Mark who had answered their calls. As the second week of the trial opened, the route that the defence proposed Fuller had taken from his home to Little's flat was outlined, A detective constable had walked it as Fuller had no access to transport and it took an hour and forty minutes. If Mark Fuller had been at home to take the calls from his family and had then walked to meet with Rachel, the times would be all wrong. Then a man who had shared a cell with Little after he was initially charged told the court about the conversation he had had with Little. He said Little had told him he was in for murder that he'd gotten drunk and had a fight with Rachel and had killed her, and then he stuffed her body in a cupboard. A police constable who had responsibility for transferring Little weeks after his arrest told the court that Little had begun talking to him during the move and said that he had refused to make comment during interviews because he was protecting someone. The officer noted the conversation down and reported it. On the sixth day of the trial, Tuesday the 21st of October, Michael Little took to the stand in his own defence. Mr Kadri, his senior counsel, took him through his background and medical history. Little told the court that he suffered from clinical depression and ailments caused by two accidents he was in a number of years before. He admitted that he had used cannabis, LSD, amphetamines and ecstasy, and that he drank. Little told the court that he had left the house party on New Year's later than had been testified to, and said it had taken him a few hours to make the three mile journey home. He said that he had been sick a number of times on that walk, but insisted that he wasn't drunk, and said he'd also stopped to buy a pizza. Little insisted he hadn't passed by the Moran house on Hall Road at all. Little said that when he arrived at his flat, Mark Fuller was there a friend who had lived with him at another address previously. Fuller, he said, was there with a girl he'd never seen before. Little made no mention of being startled or surprised to find Fuller there, nor did he introduce himself to the girl. He just changed out of his dirty clothes and made himself a cup of coffee and then sat down with the two of them. Little testified that Fuller explained to him that he didn't know the girl either. They'd just met as she was buying hash from him. The girl introduced herself as Rachel. Little said that during their conversation, while Fuller was drinking a can of lager and Rachel was drinking an alco-pop, he got up to get something from his bedroom. He said Rachel had followed him in. She'd flirted with him and had kissed him, and they'd had sex. After, he said Fuller had burst into the room going crazy. He'd grabbed a knife and threatened Little, saying he'd stolen his girl. Rachel told Little to stay in the bedroom and went out to try and sort things out, but Little said that Fuller had instead gone after her. Little sobbed on the stand as he described the sustained and brutal attack he alleged that Fuller had carried out against Rachel. Little said that after Rachel had died, Fuller had turned to him and said that this was all his fault, that he'd wanted to kill Little and not the girl and that he was only going to leave him alive, because otherwise he'd then have to hide two bodies, and the police would know that it had been Fuller who committed the crime. Little said that his friend had then made him clean up the scene in the living room, and Fuller further threatened him, saying that if he went to the police he'd kill Little and the rest of his family. Under cross-examination from Mr. Marson, Little appeared nervous, He identified one of two large kitchen knives as the one that had been used to kill Rachel, but denied that he had done the killing. Little insisted that Fuller had made him clean up, leaving Rachel's body in the bathroom while doing so. He said he'd never heard her phone ring that night, despite records that Wanda had rung Rachel every few minutes from around half two until four, when the phone was switched off. Little had no explanation for that. Little admitted that he had brought Rachel's things down to the drain, where they were later found, a few hours after she'd been killed. He said he hadn't gone to the authorities after her death because of his own guilt of cleaning up and helping to hide her body. On the seventh day of the trial, the court was emptied for a number of legal arguments to be made. On resumption the following day, it was announced that there would be another witness for the defence. Someone had presented themselves to the police, saying that they had new information which was relevant to the investigation, while the trial had been ongoing. The Humberside Police duly turned this over to the defence, and they wanted to call this person as a witness now. This new witness was a neighbor of Mark Fuller called Jim. Police notes said he had seen someone leave the Fuller house at one forty-five a.m., but he was now saying that this was a mistake; that he had actually seen the person leave the house at twelve forty-five a.m. The police officer who took this statement gave evidence first, saying he was sure of the accuracy of his notes as he had taken them down just after speaking to the man. Then the neighbor took the stand himself. Jim reiterated this new story, only days old. On Cross, it was revealed that not only did he have a lengthy criminal history which included convictions for shooting a former teacher, Jim and his family had a long-running argument with the Fuller family over a garden fence. There had been physical fights between men and the families in relation to it. Once this new evidence and testimony was heard, counsel for the defense, Mr. Kadri, called for a retrial, saying further investigation was needed. This was dismissed by the judge, but it was decided that Mark Fuller, his mother, and his sister would be recalled to the stand to be examined in light of this new evidence. The court was adjourned for the day in order to locate Mark Fuller once more. This time, Mark Fuller appeared angrier than before when he stood to give evidence, seemingly annoyed that he'd been recalled to court and given no explanation for it. On cross, the defence barrister picked at every little detail Fuller gave and tried to bait him into further anger, to perhaps try and show a violent disposition, to paint Fuller as someone who might be capable of such an horrific crime. Mr Kadri even shouted at the witness at one point, yelling, quote, are you going to stab me? End quote. But Fuller denied having left his house, and when he left the stand, he shouted at little quote, fucking murdering bastard. End quote. Both Fuller's mother and sister were recalled, and again they asserted that their previous evidence was correct and truthful. Both were cross examined closely, and both left the stand in tears. Jim was recalled once more, and his story was gone over by the prosecution in detail. Wanda recalled that this time the story was far less cohesive. He seemed to get confused and flustered, and it was far from convincing. The court then adjourned for the weekend. Closing speeches commenced on Monday morning, the 27th of October, with the prosecution outlining their evidence against Little and the defence reiterating their client's story of a consensual interaction after which Rachel was killed by a third party. Mr Justice Hooper gave his summing up and directions the following day and by mid-afternoon the jury were sent out to begin their deliberations. The court adjourned at 4pm and by lunch the following day the jury received instructions that a majority verdict would be accepted. A number of hours later, the jury asked to review the CCTV footage taken from the school near to the flats and Rachel's clothing. The jury was sent home again that afternoon. Just before 11am on the third day of deliberation, on the 30th of October, a verdict was announced. After eight and a half hours and in a unanimous decision, Michael Little was found guilty of the murder of Rachel Moran. Impact statements written by Wanda Moran and Mark Shepard were read to the court by Prosecution Counsel Mr. Morrison. Wanda told the court that the whole family was devastated, but Ray had been destroyed by Rachel's murder. She said, For my husband Ray, it has destroyed him, and at times he has felt he has nothing to live for. He frequently cries and feels guilty if he would do normal things or feel happy at events. He would feel disloyal. End quote. Mark said that his biggest regret was that he hadn't been able to say goodbye to Rachel. Mr. Justice Hooper handed down a life sentence to Michael Little and added that he didn't believe that Rachel had consented to sex with the defendant either. Her family felt vindicated by this statement. The judge said he would be sending on a recommendation that a minimum term be set for Little. Little showed no emotion as the verdict was read out or as the sentence of life was handed down. On the courthouse steps, Kerry, Rachel's oldest sister, read out a statement on behalf of the family expressing their grief at the loss of Rachel. On Wednesday the 16th of May 2007, Michael Little's tariff was set at Bristol Crown Court. The judge announced that it would be 25 years before he would be eligible to go before the parole board. Rachel's family was devastated and deeply traumatised by her loss. Wanda, at the urging of her daughter Vanda, published her book The Murder of Rachel as a way to try and memorialise Rachel, to make sure she was never forgotten. The moving account is composed in part by a publication of the diaries kept by Wanda, during the search for Rachel and the ten months after her death, encompassing a mother's thoughts and feelings as she tries to cope with her grief, the police and the legal system. It's a harrowing and touching read, and gives a true insight into the trauma caused by Rachel's murder. Wanda said, The most important, most crucial player in this pitiful scenario is Rachel herself, Our grief is nothing compared to the fact that her life has been taken, and so cruelly. All of her potential has been stolen, her life obliterated, her brilliant light snuffed out as if it were nothing by a vile creature who thought not at all of the consequences on that fateful night. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at mensrayapod or you can send an email to mensrayapod at gmail This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Chloe Howard, Therese Daly, Elisa Evolt, Jane Squire, Carmelo Dwyer, Jules Wicks, and Nigel Gibson, who has upped his pledge. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with the good vibes you get from helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash Thanks also to our sponsor for this week. Check out Best Fiends. My favourite mobile puzzle game and my favourite way to unwind. And remember, that's friends without the ore. Our theme music is Quinn's song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.menswearpod.com. And so... Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. ¶¶